touch with technology with Tech Stuff from HowStuffWorks.com. Hey there, and welcome to Tech Stuff. If I sound tired, it's because I'm recording this intro at the end of an incredible marathon recording session where I have kidnapped, I mean invited, Scott Benjamin of Car Stuff to join me and talk about aircraft carriers. I'm back. Yeah. Part two. It's almost like you never left. Uh, it's almost like I never left. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> so, so yeah, if you listen to our last episode, if you haven't listened to our last episode, you should listen to that one first, because that's where we really cover the basics of aircraft carriers. In this episode, we're going to look more at the various types of aircraft carriers, the sort of the, the how the history of aircraft carriers in the United States has unfolded. Yeah, that's yeah. fascinating. The, the class systems, uh, the, yeah. the way that they're all designated, the way that they, uh, the way that the whole evolution of the aircraft carriers come about here in the United States. Yeah, yeah, especially uh, you know when you get into World War II and you and you see how it becomes a pivotal uh, a part of the the Navy during World War II, and then changes again just a few years later as jet fighters become a reality. It's really fascinating stuff. So I hope you enjoy. Now, you want to talk about a few numbers here? Because let's, I, let's we please. Can, we can do these numbers, and, and in our article it says big numbers, and these are big numbers. And yeah. some of these will pertain to what we were just talking about. Others are just kind of coming out of nowhere. But yeah. um, Okay. This is talking about the Nimitz-class aircraft carrier. Yeah. So, uh, That's the current aircraft carrier that uh, is being used by the United States Navy that will be eventually replaced by the Ford-class once mm-hmm. that comes online. All right. So the total height from keel to mast is 244 feet. That's as high as a 24-story building, as we mentioned earlier in the podcast. Yeah. Uh, the weight in full combat mode, 97,000 tons. That's... That's a lot of tonnage. That sure is. And I'll go through these quickly so we can just get through them. But uh, the weight of the structural steel alone, mm-hmm. 60,000 tons just in steel on that ship. That's not including all the uh, all the aircraft and the people and mm-hmm. all the other stuff. Mm-hmm. Uh, the total area of the flight deck, I think we said this already, four and a half acres. The length of the flight deck, 1,092 feet. But again, they don't get to use all of that. Right. They, some of it's for launching. Some of it's for recovery. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's, it's broken up into different ways. Some of it's for storage. Mm-hmm. Uh, the width of the flight deck at its widest point, 257 feet wide, which sounds wide. But then again, you got planes, you got people, you got the pilot house. Mm-hmm. I mean, not the pilot house. What is it? The, the, the island. The island. Yeah. That's right. Pilot house. Where did you come up with that? It sounds like a restaurant. Well, you you would technically call it that on a boat. <laughs> This is significantly larger than a boat. <laughs> I'm going to go down to the pilot house for some shrimp. You want to come with me? Okay. Uh, the, oh, this is interesting. Uh, the weight of each anchor. Yeah. Each anchor, 30 tons. Yeah. And in each each link in the section of anchor chain weighs 360 pounds. Massive. You need a couple of people yeah. just to lift a link. Okay. Each propeller weighs 66,200 pounds. Each of the rudders weighs four. Uh, sorry, 45.5 tons. Yeah. That's amazing. Um, all right. How about the storage capacity for aviation fuel, which we would assume would be essential for something like this? Because they're not making power from the, uh, the, the reactor for the planes. That's obviously. true. They'd still have to carry fuel for the actual planes. They do. 3.3 million gallons is what they carry. It's incredible. Yeah, that sure is. I mean, think about that next time you go to the Georgia Aquarium and they've got that 1 million gallon tank. Uh, okay, number of telephones on board. We're getting into some of the funner stuff. Um, funner. Yeah, more fun. The most fun. The, it's the, the most fun stuff. It's the, the bestest stuff that's coming up. Uh, the number of telephones on board, 
2,500 telephones. The number of televisions on board, 3,000. Mm-hmm. What are they doing watching TV? They got a lot of, they got a ship to run. Uh, a, you, you are occasionally allowed a little <laughs> downtime in the Navy. <laughs> Maybe I'm being harsh. I don't know. I, anyways, you, okay. You'd be, you'd be quite the quartermaster. A th- <laughs> A thousand, a thousand miles of electrical cable is on board one, each one of these ships. Mm-hmm. Um, let's see. Let's go down to some of the other stuff. Um, number of dentists on board, five. Yep. Five dentists. So, yeah, you got to have that if you have thousands of people, right? So they actually do have dental offices they, aboard. They carry enough food uh, to feed 6,000 people for 70 days. That's a lot of food. That's a lot so, of food, a lot so of people. So that's, that's 18,000 meals a day. Yes, that's right. Because you multiply it by three. <laughs> 18,000 meals. Yeah, you're right. That's exactly right. Yeah. So the, the amount of mail that's processed is on board from, you know, from the post office, mm-hmm. one million pounds of mail goes to all these people throughout the, uh, throughout the year. Incredible. Um, let's see. Number of medical doctors on board. This is actually surprisingly low. Six. Yep. Six. Considering, yeah, that you're, it's like one per thousand. Mm-hmm. That's, that's a pretty low all number. Right. How about just two more to wrap it up here? Sure. Uh, the number of haircuts that they, that they give every week. 1500 a week. But there's only one barbershop. <laughs> so that, uh, that, that well, dramatic. To be, to be fair. <laughs> come on. A haircut aboard a Navy vessel often <laughs> re- involves a pair of electric clippers and yeah. not much else. Yeah, okay. Maybe um, that list wasn't as fun as I thought it was. No, but, no, uh, no. Yeah. But, but another, another one to think about is that you've got about 2,500 people who are part of the air wing yeah. aboard the, the, the vessel. Now the air wing, that's all the people necessary for the flying and main, main, maintaining of aircraft. So it's not just the pilots, it's also the crew that, that the flight crews, the maintenance crews, that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. Then you've got another 3,000 who are the ship's company. They're the ones who keep the ship running and have their own jobs aboard there, mm-hmm. including people who are super secret, like the people who maintain the nuclear reactors, who even aboard ships end up being almost legendary hmm. because you don't necessarily know who it is who works on that duty. They, it's not always something that is common knowledge aboard ship. There's a, there's an amazing and, and truly amazing 10 hour documentary series that PBS did called Carrier where they follow, uh, a bunch of sailors aboard the USS Nimitz, uh, mm-hmm. the, the, the lead ship of the Nimitz class aircraft carrier. Sure. And, uh, they talk about, uh, the, their roles aboard the ship, their decisions of going into the Navy, what it's like living aboard this kind of thing. Uh, it follows a deployment during, um, the, the wars in Afghanistan. And so it actually follows these people for a really long time. And it's fascinating. And one of the things they talk about is how, yeah, I don't think I've ever met anyone who works in the nuclear reactor area or but if they do they, they don't yeah they don't say yeah which yeah, is kind of interesting i like that i like that uh, that secretive element to the yeah. whole thing yeah so it's it's really again it's it's a very specific kind of world and the 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 crew quarters i had referred to the beds are referred to as racks mm-hmm. you have a rack of of you know and the racks are tiny i mean i don't know if you've seen pictures or video of it but i have they there's barely enough space for you to climb in to get into your little bed. Mm-hmm. And they are stacked three to a, uh, uh, to a section. So you've got a lower bunk, a middle bunk, and an upper bunk. Mm-hmm. All of these are, like I said, there, there's just enough clearance for you to climb in, essentially. Yeah. 
Um, and in fact, I watched a video of a guy getting in one for the first time, and he's like, "I'm sure I'm going to get better at this." <laughs> and this <laughs> he, was the top one. Is he, did he have a bunch of uh, like bruises on his forehead? <laughs> yeah, he had a couple of lumps, you know, here <laughs> or there. Uh, and, and you have like a tiny locker and uh, maybe a foot locker to keep your belongings in. Yeah. Uh, otherwise, you know, and you're just sharing this tiny space, and it might be. Of a lot of people sharing a relatively small amount of living space, including a lot of people sharing one bathroom. I mean, it's well, it's no cruise ship, and no, you know, even even if you do go on a cruise ship, oftentimes you'll you'll get into your room and you realize like, well, this is a pretty small room, <laughs> but you've got it uh, pretty plush compared to the military. It's luxury compared <laughs> to the military, yeah. <laughs> for sure. So, uh, yeah, really, really an amazing piece of technology. Now, I'm going to go through a little bit more about the. Um, the various aircraft classes that exist, the, the, the types of aircraft carriers that have existed in the United States history. And then I think we can conclude by talking a little bit about the, the Ford class of supercarrier that is soon to be part of the United States Navy and how it has a couple of interesting, uh, interesting new technological improvements. Yeah. Um, that, might surprise you because it's not it's not necessarily it's not that it's bigger it's not that it's not bigger than the Nimitz really mm-hmm. uh, and it's not that it's necessarily faster or that it's able to carry a significantly larger uh, uh, component of of aircraft it's more about how it's more efficient and it needs fewer people aboard it mm. which is kind of cool so going back to the earliest days. The first uh, aircraft carrier that the United States had was referred to as a Langley-class aircraft carrier. It was the USS Langley. Mm-hmm. If you hear something class, that means that the, the name of the class is generally the name of the lead ship of that class. And then other ships in that class were built as using the first one as a reference point. Like, that's the model. Mm-hmm. And then all the other ships are going to be built based on that. Uh, largely because manufacturing processes at this stage mean that we can actually make copies of stuff. So there might be a dozen Langley class ships out there. There could have or been. Or there would have been. There could have been, yeah. Yeah, I understand. But then, but the, the first one was named the Langley. Yes. Got it. So in this case, it's a single ship class, meaning that there was only one ever made. Oh, oh for, so this is a bad example on my part. But, but, but only because we're talking about the very first one. Yeah. Um, it was, it was uh, commissioned in 1922 as an aircraft carrier. However, that's not how the Langley got, got her start. And of course, we refer to ships as ladies. Mm-hmm. So she had a previous life as a collier, which is a type of bulk cargo ship. So she was converted from cargo ship to aircraft carrier. She was Originally launched as a cargo ship in 1913. Oh boy. She, the conversion process began in 1920, lasted two years. She was recommissioned in 1922. And Probably she, a wooden deck, right? She, yeah, she was, uh, she, she did not have all the amenities of a modern aircraft carrier. <laughs> it's a polite um, way to say it. She was slow. She was only capable of traveling at 14 knots, which is less than half of what we're talking about with the supercarriers mm-hmm. these days. I could run faster than that. That's a, it's a huge problem if you're only going 14 knots yeah. because you are not able to generate that amount of airspeed that airplanes would really need to take off. Yeah. So it was not, not, this is one of the reasons why the Langley is the only one in her class, um, or was the only one, I should say. Now, there was a, a, a captain in the Navy who ended up taking control of the Langley. Uh, he, he was given her command. 
and ended up establishing a lot of the handling procedures that became standard operating procedure on aircraft carriers after that. His name was Captain Joseph Reeves. He would eventually rise to the rank of admiral. Uh, so a lot of the things that ended up being used uh, every day on aircraft carriers, were that they were established because Reeves put those practices into as policy. He said, mm-hmm. this is the way we're going to do things. Um, now, the Langley was damaged by Japanese dive bombers in 1942, and the surrounding U.S. ships were forced to scuttle the Langley. Mm. So she was sunk by uh, by U.S. forces on purpose. Next, we have the Lexington class, named after the USS Lexington. Uh, that was commissioned in 1927. Uh, it was originally a battle cruiser, not... An aircraft carrier. Strange how these, uh, so the first two yeah. were not necessarily, they didn't start out life as an aircraft carrier. Exactly. Uh, and there were two ships in the Lexington class. So really the first three aircraft carriers started as something else. Now, here's the interesting thing about why we converted, we being the United States, converted a battle cruiser into an aircraft carrier. So you may have heard of things like uh, disarmament treaties. Mm-hmm. This is not a new concept. This does not just refer to the nuclear age. It goes back further. Back in the old days, like the 1920s, the big weapons were these giant Navy ships. And so there was a treaty signed, the Washington Naval Treaty of 1922, which placed strict limitations on how many warships a nation would be allowed by international law to have. If the United States built two battle cruisers, or actually, I'm sorry, battleships. They weren't even, they weren't battle cruisers. Oh, no, they were battle cruisers. So, so they built two battle cruisers. They would go over their limit. However, aircraft carriers at the time were not considered really warships. They were considered support. So instead of building battle cruisers, they just took the, the bones of the battle cruisers and converted them into aircraft carriers. Pretty smart. Yeah. So, uh, this was still in the construction phase. It wasn't like they, they had them out and sailing and then converted them. It was all, all from the, uh, at the shipyards. Uh, the lead ship of the class, the Lexington was sunk in 1942 during the Battle of the Coral Sea that Scott mentioned. Mm-hmm. Uh, the other was the Saratoga, which made it through World War II. She was heavily damaged in a couple of different battles, but she made it through. Uh, and she was later sunk on purpose. During a a test of nuclear weapons. Yeah, yeah, yeah. This is interesting, huh? Yeah, it's when you start. You decide, hey, we're just gonna we're gonna park this here boat well, right off the bikini, and yeah. then we're gonna blow it up. Yeah, but you know what? How else are you gonna test that? How else yeah. are you gonna figure out how that ship is gonna stand up to an attack like that? Yeah, as it turns out, it doesn't. Yeah, no, but it doesn't. It certainly proved it in that case. Yeah, yeah. So very interesting fate for those two. Then you have. The Ranger class, another single ship class of ships. So in other words, it's almost funny to call it a class when there's only one. Yeah. But that's what we do. So uh, she was deplo- uh, co- commissioned in 1934 and decommissioned in 1946. And this is the first ship that was built to be an aircraft carrier. Um, she was only 730 feet long, or 222.5 meters. I say only because that's much shorter than today's supercarriers. Had a full crew complement of 2,461 people. 
And uh, she was in the Atlantic Ocean during World War II because she was too slow to be deemed useful for the Pacific Theater. And now you said 730 feet, but that was probably sufficient for prop aircraft. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And and again, she was built specifically with aircraft carrier in, in mind. So yeah. this was not a conversion. So she was you know, designed with those those uh, elements in mind at that point. Mm-hmm. Although we're still talking about kind of the straight uh, landing takeoff strip that caused so many problems early on. Sure. Next, we have the Yorktown class, which was commissioned in 1937. There were three ships built in this class. Of course, the lead ship is the Yorktown. Mm-hmm. Um, she was sunk in 1942 at the Battle of Midway. So when we talk about Midway classes, guess what that's named after? Anyway, uh, the Hornet was another Yorktown-class ship. She was sunk also in 1942 at the Battle of the Santa Cruz Islands. The third ship was the original USS Enterprise. The original. Well, original in the sense of aircraft carriers. Mm. Um, now, you know what? I don't think until uh, this morning when you were talking about it, I don't think I knew that there were two USS Enterprises. Yeah. Yeah. So this one is this one was a Yorktown class ship. There would later be an Enterprise class ship, also known as the USS Enterprise. Mm-hmm. So if you guys have been watching a lot of Star Trek and you get confused about which Enterprise is which, because there's Enterprise, you know, A, B, C, D. And then, of course, there's the previous ones uh, that dates back all the way to the Navy days. I mean, it was, and of course, they named the Enterprise after this particular ship. Yeah. This was the most decorated ship in U.S. Navy history. Hmm. And um, now it's on the bottom of the ocean. <laughs> well, you can't, you know, man, no, one, you know what? no one lives forever. Going through this list, I mean, man, there's a bunch of them down there. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Well, uh, she she actually was, uh, she made it through. She was not sunk the way the Yorktown and the Hornet were. So that's something. Uh, she was 770 feet long, or 230 meters, and had a complement of 2,217 crew. Hmm. Next, we get to the Wasp class. Hmm. It's another single ship class, only one ever made. Uh, she was commissioned in 1940, but sunk in 1942 during the Guadalcanal campaign by a Japanese submarine. Uh, she was 688 feet long, or 210 meters. And she carried a crew of 2,167 during wartime, or around 1,800 during peacetime. Now, her construction came down to politics. This was one of the things I thought was fascinating. So you remember that treaty I mentioned, the 1922 treaty? Yeah. It limited the amount of tonnage the United States was able to dedicate to aircraft carriers, but they had 15,000 ton tonnage left over after everything else. And they said, well, we don't want that to go to waste. Let's build a an aircraft carrier that will make up this tonnage that we have been allotted. And the Wasp was that ship. That's strange because, OK, you're talking you're talking about a 15,000 ton Aircraft carrier. Yeah, compared to like the 30,000 or plus 60,000. Yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. I mean, it's, it seems like it's so small. I mean, how, how did know, that even work? It's called a wasp. Maybe it's was, uh, <laughs> very thin metal. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And she only lasted two years before she was sunk. Uh, so thin metal. Let's take a quick break to thank our sponsor. You know, I've talked a lot on this show about smart homes. And, you know, in the old days, it was really hard to set up a smart home. But what if you could set one up and control it all from your smartphone? Well, that's where SmartThings comes in. They've created a super easy way to control, automate, and secure every aspect of your home 
and you don't have to be a tech genius to install it or an electrician or a contractor. It's easy to set up and use. That's why they were named one of the top 10 coolest gadgets of the year by Time Magazine. It's why in 2015, CES named them an Editor's Choice Award winner. They instantly turn your home into a smart home. And you can do this with your lights, your locks, security systems, thermostats. With smart things, it's all connected through a single app that works on the iPhone, Android, and Windows Phone platforms. So I like using my smartphone to control my lights. I've talked about this before. It's still very much true. I like to be able to set the lights so that uh, I can watch a film in darkness really big on that, or turn the light on if my wife has to come down or come up from downstairs. And it's just really convenient. I don't have to shuffle around, try and get to the light switch. In other words, I can be kind of lazy, but I get to be lazy in a high tech way, which is awesome. And there's no required monthly fees with smart things. And kits start at $189. It's affordable for everyone. And for my listeners, it's even more affordable. You can get 10% off any home security or solution kits when you go to smartthings.com slash tech. Once you try it, you won't know how you lived without the peace of mind and convenience smart things brings to your life. Trust me on this. You've got to give it a try. Get 10% off any smart things home security or solution kit and free shipping inside the U.S. Just go to smartthings.com slash tech. Now, now we get into <laughs> one of the, like, what was the backbone of the United States Navy during World War II? Mm-hmm. That's the Essex class of, of uh, aircraft carriers, commissioned in 1942. There was also an extended bow variation. The bow is the front end of the ship. Mm-hmm. There was an extended bow variation that was commissioned in 1944. There were 24 ships built in the Essex class. There were another eight that had been planned but were canceled before they could be built. Uh, so this was the most plentiful of them. Out of those 24, 14 saw combat during World War II. Not a single one was sunk. That's impressive. Yeah. So all of them made it through World War II. Uh, they range, because there is an extended bow version, they range from about 820 feet, which is almost 250 meters, to 888 feet, which is about 270 meters. You know, that kind of makes sense, though, because we were talking about the role reversal and how, you know, that became the primary player then, the uh, the aircraft carrier was, mm. during World War II. Yeah. So they, when they went out, you know, these 14 ships that went out and saw saw action, they were surrounded by support ships. Yeah. And they were protecting them fiercely. Right. Uh, that's probably the difference. That's probably why all 14 made it through that. Yeah. That, that war. I mean, clearly the, the biggest danger you, you face there. I mean, there are plenty of dangers, lots of them, but the biggest one would be submarines mm-hmm. because those would be the hardest to detect. Now, a lot of the aircraft carriers, in fact, all aircraft carriers, to my knowledge, have anti submarine, um, uh, strategies where they deploy what is essentially a, a decoy that makes a lot of noise. So a submarine ends up focusing on that. Torpedoes go toward that as opposed to going to the actual aircraft carrier. So you don't want to make a lot of noise. Uh, then you have Independence Class, commissioned in 1943. This was another conversion. These were light aircraft carriers. They were conversions of Cleveland-class light cruisers. So uh, if you look at the list of Independence-class ships... You'll see that they have multiple names 
because they had already had a life as a light cruiser, but now had been converted into aircraft carrier, and they got named a new name in that case. Oh, confusing. Yeah, it's weird, because sailors generally think that it's bad luck to rename a ship once mm-hmm. they called it something. But I guess it was technically a different ship by then. Anyway, cruisers are small to medium-sized warships. They usually act as fleet support. Uh, in World War II, you, uh, the United States had need of a lot more aircraft carriers, but they are expensive. They take a lot of time to make. So there weren't a whole lot of options. The best option was to convert stuff that they already had into aircraft carriers rather than have to build new ones. Makes sense. Yeah, it makes sense. Um, so nine ships were converted ultimately uh, in this way. Now, next we have the Midway class, which was commissioned in 1945. There were three of these. Uh, they were longer than the Essex class. Uh, the lead ship of the class, the Midway, remained in service until 1992. 1945 to 1992. Not a bad, not a bad return on investment. That is a surprisingly long run. Yeah. I mean, if you look at the aircraft that the United States has depended upon, some of those aircraft have been in service for a really long time. But this, this is truly, you know, impressive to me. Yeah, and they and, might have changed a little bit between 1940 and, uh, yeah. and, and 1990. They probably got a couple of uh, refits where they cha- <laughs> changed up a little probably. bit. You know, where, hey, you finally got the compass to stop wobbling. Um, yeah, so the last action that uh, the Midway saw was in Operation Desert Storm. Mm-hmm. She took, took part in that. Mm-hmm. And then uh, she is now a museum in San Diego, California, which and- is where I got to visit. As is the case with uh, with several of these. Yeah, a lot of these um, aircraft carriers are a lot, and I'm not mentioning all of them by name, because obviously that would, we're going to be running super yeah. long if I did that. But a lot of them are now museums in various locations. Some of them are in the process of being converted into museums for some places. Um, it's a great use for them. Yeah, it's really, and it's fascinating to really get an actual look at what the living conditions are like. To see these racks mm-hmm. And see how tiny those bunks are and just think, like anyone who hasn't served time on board a ship, uh, you know, had, had, had any service aboard a ship like that, it really kind of gives you a new appreciation for the sacrifice that the men and women who choose to do that, you know, what they go through. Yeah, no doubt. Um, next we've got the Saipan class, which was commissioned in 1946. There were only two ships built in that class. They were shorter. They're 684.6 feet long, uh, 208 meters or so, and they carried a complement of 1,700. They were designed to carry 42 aircraft, including 12 bombers. They had a relatively short service life because, uh, well, they, they just weren't as useful once we started getting the development of the jet engine planes, right? Mm-hmm. They, they were far too short for that. Mm-hmm. So they were converted into command and communication ships in the 1950s. Uh, so that meant that we needed to have a new class of ship designed specifically to accommodate jet fighters. Mm-hmm. And here we arrive. It's like the modern era. Yeah, this is where we're making that, that you know, we're still not quite the nuclear era, mm-hmm. but we're at the, the super carrier era. Mm-hmm. This is where we arrive at the aircraft carrier that wasn't. The oh. the big one that that started but wasn't completed, the United States class, yeah, the, the USS United States. Didn't they only work on you know, like the beginning production of this thing for just a few days yeah. before it was canceled? They had laid the keel down. Depending upon the the account you read, it's between five and nine days. Like the keel was laid out, and within within a week or so, 
it was canceled. And uh, it was supposed to be a ship that would be 1,090 feet long or 330 meters. So this would have been the longest aircraft carrier up to that point. Mm-hmm. Um, she was supposed to be able to carry 12 to 18 heavy bombers and 54 uh, jet fighters. Now, she was canceled by order of the Secretary of Defense, Louis A. Johnson, who sided with the Air Force in an argument that was going on between the Air Force and the Navy. The Air Force said, listen, we're in the nuclear age and the best investment is for us to build lots and lots of long range bombers Mm -hmm. that can fly out over a target, drop a nuclear weapon. This is going to be deterrence. We'll never have a war again. And Johnson said, this is the way I want to go. And it led to what was called the revolt of the admirals. So you had these admirals in the Navy who all said, no, aircraft carriers are going to still be important. We're going to need a place that we can uh, we can maneuver into different parts of the world and use as a base of operations for our, our air strategy. Sure. Our own floating island. Yeah. So you had the Navy arguing that we still needed to have aircraft carriers and the Air Force arguing that, no, we did not. Then a little conflict broke out, the Korean War mm-hmm. and the Korean War illustrated that nuclear deterrence would not work in every kind of uh, outbreak of violence. And the United States believed that it had a real stake in the outcome of the Korean War. Uh, A fear of the spread of communism was a large part of this. It was all happening as the Cold War is raging. Mm -hmm. And the Navy said, see, we need aircraft carriers. And so back to... Building aircraft carriers, the Navy went. Now, isn't this something? I mean, uh, the research and development. I don't know how long that took before, you know, prior to to the uh, the start of the build. But to get nine or ten days or five days or whatever yeah. into the build and then just decide to quit. Yeah, that's um, remarkable. Yeah, yeah, exactly. What a huge you know. waste. Yeah, I mean, it's we're talking like a hundred million dollars mm-hmm. at that point. Then we get the Forrestal class. This is the one that had the the famous fire, sure. uh, the USS Forrestal. Mm-hmm. Uh, that was commissioned in 1955. There were four of them built. Um, and it was the first actual aircraft carriers to be designated as super carriers. All four were decommissioned in the 1990s. And they were 1,070 feet long, about 330 meters. And they still used steam turbines for propulsion, like they steam boilers. They didn't have nuclear reactors yet. Uh, the crew complement for that was 4,378. So hmm. we're getting bigger. Well, there's someone down there shoveling coal in? Yeah, a lot of them, actually. Burning wood? Yeah. Yeah. You know, throw throw another log on the fire. No. We need to go a little faster. That's kind of what they're doing. More steam, more steam. Mm-hmm. Uh, next, we have the Kitty Hawk class. Now, Kitty Hawk, obviously named after the test flights that the Wright brothers did at Kitty Hawk. Yeah. Uh, that was... Commissioned in 1961, there were three ships built in that class, the Kitty Hawk, the Constellation, and the America. Hmm. Uh, uh, and uh, they also use steam turbines. Then we get to the Enterprise class and the next USS Enterprise, uh, commissioned on November 25th, 1961. And uh, the USS Enterprise is the only ship in this class. They're, they never built any other ones. Uh, it was 1,101 feet long, or 1,100 feet, two inches long, 335.64 meters. Um, its flight deck was 252 feet wide, or 75.6 meters. It dipl- displaced 89,600 tons with a full load. Its top speed was more than 30 knots. 
had more than 3,350 members of the ship's company and another 2,480 as the air wing crew. They had a total of 5,830 people aboard this thing. Whoa, that's a huge crew. Huge crew. Uh, its armament included anti-ship missile defense systems and anti-aircraft weapons, and it could hold more than 60 aircraft, uh, and it's to be decommissioned this year. Oh, man. This year. So this is one that's probably going to end up being a museum someplace. I would hope so. Yeah. And I hope that they hang up pictures from Star Trek everywhere. <laughs> uh, next, we have the Kennedy class. Uh, this is a subclass of the Kitty Hawk class of aircraft carriers. It was commissioned in 1968. There's only one of them, or there was only one of them, the John F. Kennedy. And it was decommissioned in 2007. Uh, not quite as long as the Enterprise class, but they had a similar propulsion system. Uh, which means, uh, you know, the Enterprise being one that was uh, the the first one to have nuclear reactors for propulsion. Mm-hmm. The Kennedy class also had it. So unlike the Kitty Hawk class, this is why it's a subclass, right? It didn't have the steam uh, boilers like Kitty Hawk did. It had nuclear reactors. Mm-hmm. So that's why it's considered a, a, a subclass unto itself. Uh, it could carry more than 80 aircraft. But it was decommissioned because it was also the most expensive ship to maintain in the fleet, and it was due for a major overhaul, and budget cuts said that that was not going to happen, so they decommissioned it. Wow. Yeah. Uh, so instead, they built the Nimitz class, and this is what we're using today. Mm-hmm. The largest warship on the seas right now. It's named after World War II Pacific Fleet Commander Chester W. Nimitz, and the Nimitz class was commissioned on May 3rd, 1975. Just a short time before I was born. Wait, 1975, and we've gone all the way through to 2015 or 2016, really, before yeah. we come to the the next version of, of yeah. class or next class of supercarrier, right? Which is the, the Gerald Ford R. Ford class. Yeah, yeah. So she's been in the, this class of ships has been in service for for more than four decades. Yeah, yeah. that's a long time. Uh, the Navy has ten Nimitz class aircraft carriers. They are one thousand ninety two feet long, three hundred thirty two point eight five meters, and one hundred thirty four at the beam. That's forty point eight four meters. That's uh that's at the bottom of the ship. So here's the thing. Other thing about aircraft carriers is they kind of have this thing where they're narrow at the bottom and they kind of flare out yeah. width wise at the top. Yeah. And obviously you need to have a lot of surface area for your flight deck. Mm-hmm. But that's another uh, element of them. You know, it's interesting. I mean, we've got ten. Super carriers. That's pretty cool. Yeah. Yeah. No, it is really cool. Um, the, the ship's company is between 3,000 and 3,200, uh, uh, crew members plus 1,500 pilots and crew for the air wing plus 500 staff. So your total is between 5,000 and 5,200 people per super carrier. So it's a lot of folks on there. That is, I mean, the logistics of, of maintaining Everything that you have to do. I mean, we've, I know we've talked about it, but even the mail service, the sewage system, uh, fresh food, or mm-hmm. fresh food and water, mm-hmm. um, you know, all of that stuff. I mean, the barber shop, the, uh, the, the dentist, the, yeah. the, the doctors, all that. Coordinating everything has just got to be an incredible undertaking. Oh, I mean, yeah. I mean, this is, that's why you have to have this huge number of staff aboard. I mean, you, you sit there and think, like, what are they doing? Well, they're doing, they're making sure everything runs smoothly. They have to. Yeah. I mean, it's a military operation. And, and everybody's there for a specific purpose. Mm-hmm. That's the other thing is that there's 6,000 people on board, roughly 6,000. 
that have a, a specific job yeah. that they're doing. It's not like a cruise ship where you go on and, you know, more than half the people are there just to have a good time yeah. you know, and, and relax. The other half are there to work. Yeah, you're not going to find a lot of people having a good time aboard an aircraft it, carrier. Well, yeah, maybe they Once are. But, while, you know, yeah, get a little, little like, basketball in or something. Occasionally, yeah, yeah. sure. But uh, but the thing is, they've all got a job. I mean, yeah. every single one of them. So it's it's, it's just a, a different way to look at things. Yeah, and, um, and you might, you know, we haven't talked a lot about the defense systems aboard aircraft carriers, Largely because their main their main weapon are the aircraft, right? Yeah. But they do have uh, various uh, uh, defense systems aboard them. Uh, with the Nimitz, you're talking about Sea Sparrow missile system, which is an anti-aircraft and anti-missile weapon. Mm-hmm. Uh, it also has the Phalanx CIWS defense system to protect against anti-ship missiles. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's essentially an automated 20 millimeter Gatling gun that tracks and shoots down incoming missiles. Awesome. Yeah. It's watching videos of this thing working is terrifying. <laughs> yeah, also, yeah, and also these uh, the sur- surface-to-air missiles that use radar-seeking uh, signals to yeah. hone in on whatever they're bouncing the signals off of. Right. So that is another cool thing to watch. I mean, to watch yeah. the uh, watch the missiles uh, reaching their target based on radar. Yep, and they also have a uh, rolling airframe missile mounts, which can launch uh, surface-to-air missiles. Uh, which is another anti-ship cruise missile defense system. So, yeah. in other words, if an incoming missile is coming toward the aircraft carrier, you can launch one of these to try and uh, and and destroy the missile before it hits. And then you already talked about the uh, the things that they call the Nixies, right? Yeah, yeah the, the Nixies. S- that's the for the anti-submarine. Yeah, what a cool idea that they they deploy uh, decoys behind the ship mm-hmm. in order to draw in the the torpedo fire. Yeah. Very cool. I think of it kind of like flak for aircraft, where you're trying to make sure by 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 jettisoning, jettisoning uh, uh, lots of stuff that a a missile could mistake for the aircraft, so that mm-hmm. you can escape without being being hit by the weapon. Clever. So now we're finally at what is coming up next. So the Nimitz class is the current uh, aircraft carrier the United States Navy depends upon. The next is the Ford class, as we mentioned. Uh, it's the same length, more or less. Is you know essentially the same size as the Nimitz class, but it has a wider flight deck. Uh, it's four feet wider. It's got 256 feet wide or 78 meters, and has two nuclear reactors to provide the propulsion power and electricity. Has the same general top speed as the Nimitz, more or less. Again, the Navy doesn't really want us sure. to know. 30, 35 knots somewhere yeah. in there. Uh, but the systems aboard the Ford require fewer personnel, so the total crew of a Ford class ship. Remember, Nimitz is 5,000 to 5,200. Mm-hmm. Ford class, 4,539. How did they cut the crew down so it's, much? It's incredible that they, they have streamlined systems so that it requires fewer people to maintain and oversee. Uh, and it can also hold more aircraft than the Nimitz class vessel, more than 75 of them. Uh, similar armament to Nimitz. Um, and it has some advance in aircraft launches, uh, and one particular that we need to mention. This is how we're going to conclude. We're going to talk about the difference. So we had talked about the steam catapults earlier. Yeah. Then the, the Ford class is changing. We're finally getting away from these steam powered pistons mm-hmm. that launch aircraft. They're switching to an electromagnetic aircraft launch system, also known as EMALS. I like this idea. It's a really cool idea. I got to say that, you know, my first or my initial thought of this was, are they going to be able to shorten the decks? Are they going to be able to make smaller aircraft carriers? Mm-hmm. But but then I thought, well, they still need to store the aircraft. So they're still going yeah. to need a, a massive ship. Yeah. Um, it's not going to get dramatically smaller, but they might be able to shorten the length of the uh, the takeoff area, or they might be able to provide more 
runways, more takeoff areas. Sure. Um, because there are some that have as many as they can launch three or four airplanes. Yeah. I, I actually, you know what? The most I've ever seen launched at one time is three mm-hmm. uh, simultaneously. But yeah, you could have like four or five catapult areas. Yes. And the EMALS ones can reset much faster than the steam ones. Within 45 seconds, they can reset to, ah. to be able to launch another aircraft. Now, it's probably going to take longer than 45 seconds for you to get the next aircraft hooked up and ready to go. Yeah. But that's how long the system requires before it can launch again. So, uh, it's very fast. Uh, there are some downsides. I'll get to it in a second. But the, <laughs> the general way this works is that it works on the basic principles of magnetism, right? Where, mm-hmm. uh, uh, like poles on a magnet repel and opposite poles attract. So remember that shuttle we talked about with the steam powered one? Same sort of thing. You've got a shuttle there and you have a leading edge, the front side of the shuttle, the part that the tow bar is going to connect to. And then, you have the back edge of the shuttle, and you've got these two rails that are on either side of the shuttle, just like the pistons would be on the steam-powered one. Mm-hmm. But instead of using steam, you're using electricity to generate magnetic fields. And you are pulling the shuttle in the front. You're creating a, a, an opposite charge so it attracts the front of the shuttle as it starts to, you know, it wants to move toward that opposite. Yeah, it's going to slam into the other end. And then you use the same charge on the back to push the shell. So you're pulling and pushing it at the same time. And by changing, by fluctuating this magnetic field at a particular speed down the length of the, these rails, you propel the shuttle very, very quickly down the, the rails. Now the power of that push is dependent on a couple of different things. The length of the rails, which in this case are about 300 feet in length and the amount of current you're putting through it. So that means you got to put a lot of current. We're talking about a lot of electricity, a huge amount. We're talking 100 million watts per launch, which... You sound like Dr. Evil. Yeah, 100 million watts. Doing the pinky thing, just in case you guys can't see. Uh, Also, that's the same amount of electricity a small town would use in that same amount of time. Mm. So every time you launch, you're using... Within that 45 seconds of, of launch and recovery, you're using essentially the same amount of electricity a town would use in that 45 seconds. All right, but let me tell you something. Yeah. Who cares? Because you've got a nuclear you, reactor. <laughs> you're, you're creating it yourself. You're yeah. using what you create. It's not like yeah. you're, you're taking it from somebody else to use it. Yeah, they don't have a extension cord leading all yeah, the way back yeah, to yeah. D.C. or and something. And I don't mean to you know, trivialize it or anything. No, but I mean, no. But I mean, it's interesting. And I wonder how many, like, okay, I wonder what safety aspects this brings up or safety concerns this mm. brings up for crew members working on the deck. Well. Because there's a lot of crew members that each have their own job and they're, they, you know, they've got their head down doing what they're supposed to be doing. Right. There's going to be brand new procedures for this, no doubt. Sure, yeah, it's it it requires a smaller crew than the steam powered yeah. uh, version does, but obviously that crew does need to be alert because uh, if you're in the wrong place at the wrong time, I mean, when those jet engines uh, fire up, I read a I read a story about a guy aboard an aircraft carrier who got sucked into the intake, but did not get sucked into the actual jet engine itself. He he suffered. Injuries, but they were not uh, not critical injuries because he didn't get pulled all the way into the engine. He was just stuck in a terribly uncomfortable position right at the very entrance of oh. it. But that's a real concern, you know, and yes. that's going to be a concern whether it's a steam powered one or electromagnetic. Because because, again, the pilot's still going to have to 
power up full throttle so that they can take off properly. Okay, I was getting I was getting more to the point of uh, you know somebody whose job it is to to hook up the uh, the shuttle sure. to the to the uh, the landing gear. Yep. And if they mistakenly touch, you know, uh, don't touch the metal on the plane and the metal <laughs> on the on the deck here at the same time. Yeah. Um, I can I understand, but there's also there's also huge dangers with the steam powered device yeah. as well. I mean, I mean they, you're talking about a massive amount of steam under huge pressure. Hey, right? something's going to throw a plane off of a ship. I mean, it's going to yeah. be it's going to be dangerous right. no matter what. Right. So this has been one of those things that some people have claimed has held up the development of the Ford uh, supercarrier because obviously. Like we're saying, you need to make sure the system is going to work. It's going to replace something that already exists. So there's some who would argue, well, why are you replacing something that has been proven to work? Mm -hmm. And the answer is that, well, this system could potentially take up much less space. You still have to have a massive amount of space just for the power generator to send the electricity to the rails. But Mm -hmm. it's still going to be smaller than the steam uh, pistons that you'd be using, at least directly under the deck. Um, and, uh, you know, it uses, again, a smaller crew, so you don't need to have as many people aboard your aircraft carrier. Yep. Military's going to like that. Yeah. So, uh, you know, not the most electrically, uh, uh, efficient device, maybe, but still really fascinating. Yeah. Maybe I should clarify that. The military budget people are going to like that. <laughs> yeah. But the, but the thing is, I, I still wonder, I wonder if it's going to be any faster than the steam system mm. or if it's going to be more capable. Then the steam system, uh, as far as, you know, uh, the, the launch distance, the launch time, because we said that it launches a plane in like in two seconds and it's going 165 miles per hour yeah. when it launch at the end of that of that travel. Well, I mean, it is the difference between changing the electric current along a rail versus a, the mechanical action of a piston being yeah. pushed forward. So I guess you're going you're going 165 miles per hour instantly. Yeah. Instead, I mean, of, could. instead of approaching that and then, and yeah. then at launch. Yeah, your acceleration could be even faster, I would imagine. Wow. I mean, I, I, I also imagine that they set it so it's not that because you obviously don't want to cause uh, injury to the pilot or damage the, yeah. the vehicle. But, um, could yeah. Be, could be lethal. Yeah. At that, that sort of speed. So, uh, this was really a lot of fun to talk about. And, um, uh, you know, when we first started, I wasn't sure if we were going to get two episodes out of it, but we sure did. Yeah. Yeah, we did. <laughs> I can tell already. So, <laughs> so here, here's another peek behind the curtain for you, you listeners out there. Sometimes we don't know how long an episode's going to be and we don't know how, um, you know, you know, whether or not something's going to be one part or two parts. And the funny thing is you've already listened to part one and this is the end of part two. But we didn't know it was going to be in the part two until I looked down at, at Scott's timing device and saw that we're well over an hour and a half if we wanted to release this as one episode. You were giving them all the secrets. I know, right? Well, I mean, come on. We just had Tech Stuff 700th <laughs> episode, so I feel like I feel like we've had a few moments, me and the listeners. Probably. So, uh, Scott, thank you so much for joining me for these two episodes. I really appreciate well, it. Well, you know what? Once again, I had a lot of fun talking about this. You know way more about aircraft carriers than I do, obviously. But... I had a great time, and it's always a good conversation, so thank you for inviting me, and uh, I'd gladly do it again. Fantastic. And uh, next time, I swear, I'll, I'll pick something car-related. <laughs> no, maybe next time we'll talk about the coast-to-coast uh, driverless car test that's about to happen. We're recording this the week just before that weekend where that's going to start, mm-hmm. and there's going to be a coast-to-coast uh, test of a an Audi vehicle 
from San Francisco to New York. So maybe we'll, uh, after that's over, whether it, it succeeds or fails, you and I can sit down and talk about what happened. Yeah, let's see what happens. That sounds good. Well, uh, guys, if you want to hear more of Scott's work, you need to go check out Car Stuff. It's a great series. Uh, fantastic. You've got uh, the, the Car Stuff website that has uh, the videos as well as the podcasts on it. You need to go check that out. Scott, again, thank you so much. Listeners, if you have suggestions for future topics you want to have me cover on tech stuff, send me a message and let me know. I'm tired of guessing. You guys are tough. My email address is techstuff at howstuffworks.com or drop me a line on Facebook, Twitter, or Tumblr. The handle at all three is techstuffhsw, and we'll talk to you again really soon. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit howstuffworks.com. 